Hello, uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I would like to talk a little bit about Medusa's Coil, which is written by Zelia Bishop and HP Lovecraft. It was uh, written in 1930, um, published in 1939 in Weird Tales. So this story is one of the three Zelia Bishop revisions that Lovecraft worked on. We looked, we talked about Medusa's Coil and the Mound and uh, the curse. Well, we talked about the Curse of Yig, sorry. The Curse of Yig, uh, the Mound, and now Medusa's Coil is the third and final of these revisions. Um, now it's not clear. Uh, it's like clear that the Mound is mostly Lovecraft's work. Uh, the Curse of Yeg, we have a quote by Lovecraft in one of his letters saying it's like 75% his. This one, we don't have anything really confirming that. We don't know how much of the plot is really Zillia Bishop's. Certainly there's a lot of Cthulhu kind of mythos stuff in here. That's probably been added by Lovecraft. And, the, you know, he certainly reworked it a lot. But um, it's not entirely clear how much of like the, like the really kind of silly... Uh, revelation at the end that's supposed to be this profound horror uh is is his or zelia bishops and i'll just come out uh and say that we in this story we basically meet a, a witch who has ancient roots uh tradition like from african mythology and things and from african history um who you know ends up marrying this this uh American Southerner who's interested in painting when he's in Europe he bring comes back he also brings back this friend who shows up uh, and anyway she's some kind of demon or witch that gives a puts a curse on this family and and somehow this curse is connected to a painting of herself that is produced by the friend of of, of the of her husband uh, a guy named Marsh um, and then the big real revelation is that she's partly of African descent you know, slightly, the, this is the word that is in the story, slightly a negress, right? So she's of some mixed blood. Um, so that's it. It's, it's, it's kind of obvious, actually, by the time we get to the end of the story, because we're told again and again that there are connections to Africa. Um, now, what I think is interesting about this story, because, um, you know, it gets called somebody's Lovecraft's most racist story, and there are kind of troubling elements, like the black servants um, this is set on a plantation there are black servants who uh, really just seem to be extensions of the former slaves that once you know the descendants of the former slaves that lived on this plantation they're they're just background characters they're not given any agency they actually seem to be quite content in their life on this plantation so that's a bit troublesome that's even worse i think than the the revelation that this character is of african descent right that's it's that's actually one of the more interesting aspects of the story it seems to me uh the fact that it's framed as a horror is a little bit troublesome the way it's worded that uh, she's a negress that's how it's worded in the story not that she's from africa or that she has african roots um that go deeper because this is a story that really develops you know this like an african place for this these vernacular mythologies that we've been studying and looking at throughout this series of, of Lovecraft stories. We've seen Native American mythologies. We've seen, uh, you know, Kurdish mythologies. We've seen Syrians. We've seen uh, various uh, heterodox cults throughout the world, Pacific Islanders, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these different immigrant communities. Um, 
and coming into America, bringing with them some tr- these these different traditions, this mythology that's all sort of seemingly, especially by this point in career, Lovecraft is really connecting these all together into one broader cosmos. Um, and then to put Africa, to give Africa a place in that, because Africa, of course, does have this very deep history, right, going back to ancient Egypt. In fact, there's a revision we looked at before that has a slight mention of, of Africa. I think the last test gets into some uh, of that. And of course, uh, the nameless city, I guess, is set in Africa. So we've seen touches of it. And this one develops a little bit more uh, African and African-American and Afro-European mythologies and how they, they extend back into this primordial past and are, are still active, in this case, active in this witch. Marceline is her name. Um, uh, now, the title, the Medusa's Coil, refers to her hair. I guess that's another kind of racist element. I think, I think it's talking about like the curly, you know, hair of people of African descent, I guess, uh, is kind of made out to be snakes and, and a threat, and it, it, it does turn out to be a weapon. So she's somehow connected to like the Gorgon mythology. Um, I actually think someone who actually studied like uh, the, the traditions of the African diaspora and the African diaspora's acute awareness of their own relationship to Africa and their identity of Africa. You know, this is something that African-American historians have been writing a lot about lately. It's been, it's a big feature of people who've studied this is looking at how African-Americans see Africa and see African traditions and see their own place uh, as, you know, having like they're seeing, they're in America and they're Americans, but they have their own kind of tradition and ideas and heritage almost a nationalist heritage. Certainly this is something that was embraced by black nationalists, this idea that Africa is very, especially Egypt, and these traditions are very close to our own identity. You know, the same way white Europeans may go back to Greece, we can go back to Egypt, right? So this is a key part of what's called the Afrocentrist tradition. And Lovecraft's and Bishop here uh, are kind of touching on all this stuff in really, really fascinating ways. So I don't think at all that this is a story that should be just re- disregarded as racist. It, it is, but it's not It's not his worst. Um, it's not worse than the street. Uh, the street is much more profoundly uh, hostile to, to immigrations and, uh, and anyone who's not like Anglo-Saxon. Uh, this is... I don't want to say it's a mature uh, or sympathetic look at African traditions, but he's trying to get at this in a way. And again, I don't know how much of that Zelia Bishop's um, contribution. Um, it seems that she must have had this idea of this of this witch that's drawing her power from ancient African traditions, right? Now, I, I think had someone who understood African-American traditions a little bit more, someone who maybe was... Uh, you know, study that a bit. Uh, maybe someone from the South uh, might have done a better job. We know, for instance, when he writes his letters to Robert E. Howard, they, one thing they talk about is African-American mythology and traditions and beliefs and folklore. And Robert E. Howard seems to know a lot about this stuff and, and comments on it. And Lovecraft doesn't seem, you know, that on the ball about these things. So had he been more up to speed about these things, these ideas, you know, the ideas of the black nationalists. Now, this is not a new idea that comes out of like the 60s. It's, you know, this idea that the black diaspora, the African diaspora has ties to to Africa through, uh, through legends and mythologies and religions and ideas and perspectives. 
you know, you see this in Delaney, for instance. Du Bois did this a little bit. Phyllis Wheatley in her poems did a little bit of this. So it, it shows up a lot. In fact, uh, if you go listen to the podcast, the History of the Philosophy podcast, they just finished uh, a series on 19th, well, 18th and 19th century uh, black philosophy uh, in the diaspora and in Africa. And uh, that podcast talks a little bit about these ideas too, actually quite a lot. It comes up quite a lot in that series. And they're currently working on a series on the 20th century, I believe. So that's something maybe you want to check out if you want to know more about these traditions. So uh, it's just that Lovecraft's not the right person to write this story. It's someone who really understood the black experience a little bit more intimately, studied it a little bit more directly, uh, not just kind of basing it off of assumptions and you know, that would have been better. It's it's a lot better story than like his other stories that deal with Africa in terms of not being racist. I mean, think of uh, Arthur German. I mean, that's much worse. That's actually dealing profoundly with with race and heredity and, and you know, panic about miscegenation and these things. The miscegenation here, well, it doesn't really happen because they don't have kids, but the interracial marriage of it all is not even commented on at the end. It's, it's I guess it's saved for the final spook, the final scare at the end but um so it's not mentioned but it's this marriage between dennis uh our kind of our main storyteller's son and marceline this uh you know someone of some percentage um african blood it's never really commented on till till the end obviously they don't make a deal of it so um i don't know i think this is a complex story that's uh, silly at times, ridiculous at times, but it's really, really uh, fascinating in this way. I think another really, really good thing about this story is it's one of his best stories about art. Um, I think it actually is better than Pickman's model in trying to describe a work of art that gets at the cosmic horror, that, that uses art to convey a scene of cosmic horror. Um, you know, with Pickman's model, it's just, oh, there's ghouls, and he painted these ghouls that live like under his house. Uh, or in the subways or whatever, you know, it's kind of freaky that these things actually live and it's drawn from life. That was the quote from the story, but we don't get him. He's not painting cosmic horror, uh, but our painter char character here, Marsh, uh, who falls in love with Marceline and paints this painting of her, you know, is depicting this. And, and maybe we can get a look at that quote later on. So anyways, that's my overall perspectives on uh, Medusa's coil. But let's let's talk a little bit about the story in a little bit more detail. So uh, like all the Zelia Bishop revisions that Lovecraft wrote, we have a nested narrator. We don't have a, we have a narrator who hears a story from someone else. Uh, the first two we seen were like ethnographers. They were seekers. They were explorers. This guy is just, um, this narrator is just a guy uh, driving around the South uh, trying to get to the next town. Um, and so he's, so there's in six chapters. So in the first chapter, he's just, uh, he enters, he's driving around and he, he, it's getting late and he decides he can't really drive on for the night and he's kind of lost. So he, he needs direction. So he enters this decaying plantation, which is the only thing nearby. And of course, in this kind of rural south, you have these big plantations, big land holdings, and they're kind of spread out, right? Um, so he doesn't quite know where he is. He's a bit... Um, disturbed by that it even seems deserted though but he 
he goes there and he opens it and he, we get a lot, lot of nice stuff about the architecture actually of this building. Uh, it seems Lovecraft has always excels at describing the architecture here uh, as he does in all stories, but he does it really well here as well. I, again, this could have been Zelia Bishop, but I don't think so. This is this is really uh, the detail of the scenery and the trees and the, the architectural styles. It's really uh, what we come to expect from Lovecraft when he's talking about buildings. Um, he kind of snoops around. He doesn't see anyone there, so he, he knocks the door, knocks on the door, and um, he finally goes inside. All right. And while he's inside the house, he thinks it's deserted, but he hears an old man upstairs. He hears someone kind of fumbling around upstairs. Um, and he, the old man comes down and says, like, can I help you? What are you doing in the house? And they have a little banter back and forth where he apologizes for walking in on his house. And the old man says his name's uh, Rousset, Antoine de Rousset. Uh, he, he says, well, it's okay. I, I took too long to get down here. And, and then... He's, he kind of gives him the directions he needs to get where he's trying to go. But eventually he says, you know, it's too dark. Just stay the night. Um, and at this point, our narrator, our main narrator, realizes that this is an evil place. Um, and he gets the sense that something's holding the old man here to this old house. Because why would this old man who seems he's an empty nester, doesn't seem to be anyone else around. There's no like, um, there's like a lot of mention later on in the story of servants, you know, of like, the, the laborers who work on this this land but you don't see any sense of them at this moment so it seems really de um, deserted and he doesn't know why this old man would stay there why wouldn't he just sort of retire move into a smaller place so there's a sense that something is tying this old man to the house i think he even says something uh, that suggests that so that's chapter one um so chapter two through five of this story just like the bulk of the curse of yeg and the bulk of the mound are told from someone else's point of view so here we get antoine de Rousset's story um and i'll try to summarize it as best i can um so basically it's like he gives him the second floor guest room to stay in but you know says oh let's talk let's let's this old hermit is open up to opens up to speak to this this uh this uh, visitor who comes, right? So it's a pretty basic beginning of a horror story. All right. And he says he comes from an old line of planters. like So So he's a southern, part of that southern planter class, that landowning class. Uh, former slaveholder or his family. I guess he was a former slaveholder himself but because he goes back that far. But certainly his family was a slaveholding family. And we get, uh, here's another kind of really problematic issue with the story i guess is if you want to nitpick it's racism is there's like a few lines here that reflect this kind of old south image this idealistic you you know vision of the old south as the happy slaves and the you know the perfect scenery and everyone's sort of happy and content peaceful this was of course a big myth propped up by slaveholders to to justify their continued enslavement of black people when it was under assault by um by um, abolitionists and the slaves themselves, uh, making it clear that they didn't want to be slaves in a variety of ways. Um, so that's could could the story could have done without that. I mean, I'm not saying this couldn't have used a nice revision, but wow, they're like what's here is kind of wild. Um, so then we're introduced. So this plantation is called Riverside. I don't think it's that important, but it's an old established family homestead. Maybe that's the wrong term, homestead. Homestead makes it apply. You work it yourself. You know, he he slaves and later low-paid tenants or uh, 
tenant uh, farmers work the land afterwards. Um, but anyways, he has a son. Um, he has a son named Denis. And Denis is presented as a romantic, aristocratic type, kind of very similar to how many uh, Southerners in the before the Civil War saw themselves as kind of inheritors of like an aristocratic ethos that's maybe been lost as the United States became more industrial and, and commercial and market-driven. Um, this was part of, again, the defense of the of, of the Old South. I think Eugene Genovese's last book, The Mind of the Master Class or whatever, talks a lot about this philosophy, this ideology. You know, they were against the French Revolution and the revolutions of 1848 because they somehow believed strongly in the uh, their heritage as, as kind of aristocrats or something. But D Denis seems to be part of that. And here's where we get into art, is he starts to, he, he finally studies modern art, Denis. He becomes an artist. And, you know, the artist, it's not, you know, we get a lot of conversations about modernist art, which is something Lovecraft likes to do. He did it, of course, in The Hound, if you remember that story way back in this series, where there's a lot of, we had a couple of grave diggers who first, before they got into grave digging, they explored decadent art of of the turn of the century, uh, things like, or even the late 19th century, things like the symbolists, the pre-Raphaelites and others. I think the, the genre of, of art that strikes me here is he's trying to hint at, I don't think he uses the name ever, but it's really like the symbolists. I think that's the one that is mentioned by name in the hound, but it's not mentioned here by name, but I, I get the sense that our narrator is kind of into that stuff. Um, but anyways, he's into um, this, this modern art and he goes to France he goes to study modern uh, art in France and he gets influenced by these decadents um, now the symbolists I guess you could f associate them with the decadents in a way they were interested in like dreams and uh, myth but they reinterpreted them in really odd ways a lot of wild paintings if you if you can search it and, and check it out if you're not that familiar with with art history you can look at it and there's some really wild stuff I'm thinking of this really bizarre painting that's supposed to depict Salome's and, and, the, and with the moment she kisses the head of John the Baptist and John the Baptist's head is floating and there's like light coming off of it and Salome's in this really elaborate uh, like outfit uh, I guess you should uh, I, I'm not sure. yeah it's I, I don't forget I, I forget who made this painting who did this painting but it's um, really uh, something I had in mind when I was reading the story uh, okay, anyways, now in, in France, I, I guess Paris, he meets Frank Marsh of New Orleans. And he's also a modernist artist, but, you know, it's like meeting someone from the local, local from my own home state when I'm in France. It, it happens, right? And he starts talking about odd ideas about Medusa and mythology. So he's not just into art and modern art, he's into mythology and stories and all this wild stuff. Um, and it's here while he's in France that he meets this princess who's given the name, a priestess, I mean, who's given the name Tant Isis or Tanit Isis, so T-A-N-I-T dash I-S-I-S. So right away we get an African term, you know, we get Isis here, which is, of course, out of Egypt. So it's the end revelation that this woman is, is of African descent, at least partially, is not a... It's, it's so obvious. I can't, I can't believe anyone would have been surprised by it. We're told so many times that it's essentially true. I mean, 
I sort of knew where the story was going. I, I, I read the Wikipedia before the first time I read it. So I sort of knew it was coming, but I have a hard time believing someone could read the story and not just imagine uh, someone of, of African descent in, in their head when they read the story. Uh, she's even from the West Indies. Of course, there are white West Indians. but um, Anyways, we get her name. Marceline um, is her name. And Dennis just falls madly in love with this priestess. Um, and it's clearly an ill-fated relationship. Uh, that's a lot of suggestions that it is. And of course, our narrator, this is all from the, this narrator, Antoine de Rousset's point of view. So he's faced tragedy since then. So he's, you know, says some things. This is a bit suspicious, he thinks. But the suggestion is that this was an ill-fated relationship from the beginning. But he marries her nonetheless and brings her home and begins to pursue a life as a you know as a aristocrat in in the american south again um and she takes on the life as a private gentlewoman basically being a housewife um and what you know we're it, i think here's the first time her hair is described in some detail and you know you got this bedusa mythology already mentioned and we have her hair which is got these black coils that look like snakes right so her her physical features hint at medusa that's what we're told here let's see if i can find the actual description all right here's a bit of it i would almost have thought of medusa or bernice myself without having such things suggested to me upon seeing and studying that hair sometimes i thought it moved slightly of itself intended to arrange itself in distinct ropes or strands but this may have been sheer illusion she braided it incessantly and seemed to use some sort of preparation on it. I got the notion once, a curious, whimsical notion, that it was a living being which she had to feed in some strange way. All nonsense, but it added to my feelings of constraint about her and her hair. So, um, what's that? Um, the hair seems to be alive. Um, and the servants seem to dislike her, right? Which again hints that maybe they... We don't get enough about the servants, to be sure. The workers, the tenant, I think they're tenant, they must be tenant farmers. Maybe they're wage workers uh, of some sort. But, you know, I get, knowing the economy of the South and the post-Civil War era, most, most would have been tenant farmers, sharecroppers of some sort, working these old plantations. Um, so the servants just dis disliked her. And I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is I, I think, if they somehow know something's up, right? They understand the magic that she's bringing from Africa, right? That the white people don't seem to catch on to quite as quickly. They're a little, they're a little denser on these things. That's a common Lovecraft theme. The common people know a little bit more than our narrators and story, our main characters often know, uh, because they're kind of, they're closer to the ground in a way, closer to where these traditions thrive and live. So anyways, um, all right, chapter three. So chapter three deals with uh, the return of Frank Marsh, this, uh, who was only mentioned in the previous chapter a little bit. But he goes to visit. He wants to stay in the countryside a little bit. He's looking sick. He kind of drank himself and decadented himself uh, to a point where he had to kind of recuperate. Too much, too much time in France. So he has to go back um, and he wants to get closer to home, closer, cl closer to art, get away from, get away from Paris, um, clean up a little bit. And he gets there um, and he actually says at one point he reaches the limit of what he can find beautiful. 
Um, and he also has this desire to see Marceline. And there's some really, really cl clear relationship, connection between Marceline and Frank Marsh. Um, and eventually he decides he wants to paint Marceline as a way to break free of his kind of funk. Um, and we see this closeness growing between Marceline and, uh, and Frank Marsh. Now, this is a bit odd in the story. I, I think it's just used for a device in a way, but because um, you kind of got a love triangle set up and Lovecraft doesn't really develop it or Lovecraft and Bishop don't develop this love triangle really because that could have been an interesting kind of subplot here. But instead, uh, the father, Rousset, uh, Antoine de Rousset, sends his son to New York basically to get him away from this, which seems a really odd way to respond to looking his wife is falling for another man. So, it's, you know, the thing, way to solve that is you leave while he paints her, probably in the nude, you know, day after day. Really, really bizarre thing that I didn't buy for a minute. But anyways, that's what happens. This old man sends him to New York. We'll just call him the old man. Uh, the old man sends him to New York. And meanwhile, Marceline and... Um, and uh, And Marsh uh, work on this painting, um, work on the painting, and they spend a lot of nights there. And there's all these weird things happening because we're told like the servants hear weird sounds there from time to time, but they learn not to think much of it. But anyways, the main thing is they're working on these paintings. And we get, here's where we really get this description that there's some connection between like the mythology that Lovecraft's been building up in his stories and Africa in a way. So here's a little bit of it here. Um, it is you who are cheaply sentimental. You know well that the old things had better be left alone. This is Marceline talking. You know well, talking to uh, Frank, you know well that the old things had better be left alone. All of you had better watch out. If I ever chant the old rites or try to call up what lies hidden in you goth, Zimbabwe and Relay, I thought you had more sense, end quote. Um, so we got a suggestion here of Zimbabwe, which uh, I, I this came up in a previous. Actually, I think it came up in a revision before, not one of Lovecraft's core stories, where there is a relationship to Great Zimbabwe in one of the stories. But I, I don't quite remember where. Maybe someone there knows where this is. But I, I think this is not the first time that Lovecraft has expressed an interest in Great Zimbabwe, um, which I think was recent. You know, it might be in the, one of his letters, actually. It might be in one of his letters that came up. If not one of his stories. But anyways, I'm pretty sure we talked about it before. But anyways, uh, this was sort of revealed around this time. Uh, this great city of, in southern Africa. Right? Um, the ruins of it. And people started to study it. And it changed our perspective about African history. In, in, you know, they're kind of the, the very, very old model of African history. Is that you had Egypt, you had Islamic cultures in North Africa... And to the degree you had writing and civilizations in sub-Saharan Africa, they were kind of brought down the Nile or through the Sahara by these other cultures like Islam, Christianity, and Ethiopia. And of course, now we have a much more complex and mature view of African history, but it started being changed by discoveries of things like Great Zimbabwe um, and other archaeological discoveries in, in Southern Africa. So, but that was the big one. And so there's this, you know, that's just, if you want to get old in Africa, that's one place you can go, right? Timbuktu, maybe, you know, Egypt, 
but Great Zimbabwe. It's particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's connected here to Yugoth and Relay, other geography, other places in the geography of, of Lovecraft's mythology. So um, it seems there's like this kind of love developing between them. And of course, the old man is a little bit bothered by this. Um, and Dennis, Denis is quiet from New York. We doesn't hear from him for a while. Um, so then in chapter four, this is on the 26th of August. I'm not sure the, I don't think we're given the year, but the year we find out later is like probably five or six years before um, the events of, before the, the, the man came to this house in the first place, before the story actually takes place. Um, and the old man is like having all these pains and he's not feeling well and he's feeling under the weather and he takes opium and he actually passes out from taking too much opium, right? So he falls asleep, but he thinks he hears Marceline before he finishes passing out. And he wakes up with a premonition that something's wrong. And he sees like um, there's blood um, dripping from the ceiling. Something we've seen before in a, a picture in the house. All right. The blood dripping from the ceiling. Um, and he goes up and there's blood everywhere. It's like he goes up to Marceline's room to the studio. Actually, I think it's the studio where... Marceline and, and Frank Marsh are working and he goes up there and sees all this blood everywhere um, and he sees the dead body of Marsh and Marceline and Marsh's head is covered with all this this like black hair and remember before the suggestion that the hair of Marceline comes alive that's sort of proven to be true here uh, it's coming off and it was a weapon that seemed to have killed Frank Marsh um, now, he later on discovers that Dennis is the room. So that's why he was quiet from New York is because he was taking the train back home. He didn't, when he came in, he didn't stop to wake up dad. He went straight upstairs to confront Frank Marsh and Marceline. And he thinks there's something up and he thinks it's all involved magic and evil stuff. So it's not clear what, how, how he came to this conclusion, I think, because he's kind of freaking out. Uh, when he's telling the story of what happened. So now we have another embedded narrative. We have a story within a story within a story. Um, so we get kind of Denise narrative of what happened that, that night within uh, the old man's narrative. Um, and he claims that she was evil and needed to be killed. Um, and basically it's, it's a few pages where we get the description of the, of the fight. But basically what happens is he... Uh, attacks and kills Marceline, um, seeing her as an evil being, just thinking he must kill her. But then at, before she is killed, it's not, you know, maybe she's a witch and can live on. It's actually what's hinted at in the story, partially through the painting. But her hair kills Frank Marsh. That's, that's, that's I guess, another laugh out loud moment. There's a couple of them here, but I I think that what's good here is so good. I mean, the the kind of the geography of of this mythology so expanded by this story i can't hate it i guess um first let's listen to this we get this uh some stuff about even easter island mentioned here um listen to this god but frank is an artist this is denny talking to his father god but frank is an artist the thing is the greatest piece any living souls produced since rembrandt it's a crime to burn it but it'd be just a greater crime to let it exist, just as it would have been an abominable sin to let that she-demon exist any longer. The minute I saw it, I understood what she was. 
and what part she played in the frightful secret that had come down from the days of Cthulhu and the Elder Ones. The secret that nearly wiped out when Atlantis sank, but that kept half alive in hidden traditions and allegorical myths and furtive midnight cult practices. For you know, she was the real thing. It wasn't any fake. It would have been merciful if it had been a fake. It was the old hideous shadow that philosophers never dared mention. The thing hinted at at the Necronomicon and symbolized in the Eastern Island Colossi. She thought we couldn't see through, that the false front would hold till we had bartered away our immortal souls. Unquote. So this is her justifica- his justifications for killing her. But, but as she dies, her hair kills Frank Marsh. Now, he's telling the story and he even thinks he might have to kill the old man. He has to destroy the painting. But instead, he just kills himself. <clears throat> And um, dies. But we also get another taste at some of her beliefs and traditions. Um, quote, we could hear both. We could both hear some of the things she howled and knew the secret and primordial bonds linked the savage sorceress with the other inheritors of elder secrets who had just been expurgated. Some of the w- words she chose betrayed her closeness to demonic and Pelagonian traditions. A little bit later. Old Sophie she knew. Old Sophie she done got the black stone out of big Zimbabwe and old Afriki. And then we get more of Shubnigareth. Uh, maybe Yogg-Sloth shows up. All that. All the weird kind of Lovecraftian cultic language. Um, but he says, you got to destroy this all. Bury them, be deep, destroy, the, destroy everything. Got to be forgotten. So this is another classic Lovecraft theme got to forget this stuff. You can't let any of it survive. So um, he's actually saying, you got to be like Willet in Providence during the case of Charles X. Ward, destroy it all. Destroy all memory of it. Or we're all in big trouble. So that's pretty standard Lovecraft stuff. Um, so then we get uh, chapter five is kind of the aftermath of this day uh, where he does do that in part. He um, he buries the bodies. He pours lime on them to help with the decay. He buries them. He buries his son far away from Marsh and Marceline, who are, it's, it's suggested, are actually intertwined, embracing in the tomb. Um, he also cleans up the scene, um, but he doesn't touch the picture. The picture seems intact. Um, he has a growing, after he does this, he cleans up everything, but no one really visits the plantation anymore. There seems to be a fear of it. There seems to be a hex on it. Now, later on, we learn that the, that this is all like ghosts. Uh, the house, the old man are all ghosts. The painting even perhaps was ghosts because this whole plantation had burned down, uh, on this night. Um, so at this point it's a ghost, uh, just remembering these things. Um, but he sort of suggests you can see the painting, um, to this uh, visitor. And he, but first, before going to it, he describes the painting. And this is really important stuff, is where he describes the painting to our narrator. So first we get the description of Marceline in the painting. Um, Marsh had been pretty literal when he hinted that he wasn't painting Marceline alone, but what he saw through and beyond her. Of course, she was in it, was the key to it in a sense. But her figure only formed one point in the vast composition. She was nude except for that hideous web of hair spun around her and was half seated, half reclining on a sort of bench or divan, carved in panners unlike those of any known decorative tradition. There was a monstrously shaped 
goblet in one hand from which spilling fluids whose colors I haven't been able to place or classify to this day. I still don't know where Marsh ever got his pigments. The figures in the divan were the left-hand foreground of the strangest sort of scene I've ever saw in my life. I think there was a faint suggestion of it being all a kind of emanation from the woman's brain. Yet there was also the directly opposite suggestion, as if she were just an evil image or hallucination conjured up by the scene itself. I can tell can't tell you know whether it's an exterior or an interior whether those hellish cyclopean vaultings are seen from the outside or the inside or whether they be indeed carved in stone and not merely morbid fungus aborescence the geometry of the whole thing is crazy if one gets acute and obtuse angles all mixed up and god the shapes of nightmare that floated around the perpetual demon twilight the blasphemies that lurk and leer and hold a witch's sabbath with that woman as a high priestess the black shaggy entities that are not quite goats the crocodile-headed beast with three legs and a dorsal row of tentacles, and the flat-nosed agapans dancing in the pattern of Egypt's priests new and called accursed. But the scene wasn't Egypt. It was behind Egypt, behind even Atlantis, behind fabled Mew, and myth-whispered Lemuria. End quote. And I could go on. The description of it's more. But this is why I thought of the symbolists, because I think, wow, this is just like, when you look at symbolist art, you get this sense that you're looking into a dream. You're looking at a world beyond the world. So um, we get the description of the painting, uh, and it's really great. Um, now, we get a suggestion here that he's been forced to sort of protect the painting. He couldn't bring himself to destroy it. And he even says at one point he, he gets turned to stone in his inability to act in destroying the painting. So again, a little bit more of the Medusa Gorgon mythology. And more descriptions of the local fears, the refusal to go visit the plantation. Um, and that's kind of it. That's the end of his story. Then we get to chapter six, and now we get, again, the invitation to see the painting. And he agrees to see it. And he goes to see it, and the painting in the Marce Marceline in the painting is rotting. It's kind of like a, almost like a Dorian Gray kind of thing. I guess it's not quite, uh, but the, whatever's happened to the body under the floorboards in the basement uh, or buried underground is what's happening to the image on the painting it seems the color is changing and he's kind of horrified by it and he, he freaks out he can't handle what he sees the cosmic horror of it all the grotesque imagery or whatever and he shoots the painting and instead of just creating holes it the painting actually vanishes and the old man says oh you've done it now you've created a curse you've released her she's going to wake up now and come for us we got to get out of here and so they get out. He, he says, you, the old man's like, you've got a car. I've got to go with you. You can't let me stay here. We might get a head start and get away from her. So they get in the car and drives away. Now, at one point, he stops for like directions again and talks to a local guy. And the local guy says, like, tells him a little bit about the old man and the stories. And just basically that the place burned down. And, you know, he, there's that it was kind of a lot of rumors about Marceline. Rumors about uh, from the local workers, the, the different plantation workers. Again, not really established if they're tenants or wage laborers or whatever. But uh, a lot of weird stories about it. But that that you know, five or six years ago, the place burned down. That's what we're told. Um, and so that then we got the suggestion that these are all ghosts, or the old man at least is a ghost. Um, now, and it's at the very end of the story. This is tacked on, just kind of awkwardly. Um, that, you know, really the scary thing 
is that Marceline is of African descent. The way it's worded is this. It would be too hideous if they knew that the one-time heiress of Riverside, the accursed Gorgon or Lamia, whose hateful crinkling coil of serpent hair must even now be brooding and twining vampiritically around an artist's skeleton in a lime-packed grave beneath a charred foundation was faintly subtly yet to the eyes of genius unmistakably the scion of Zimbabwe's most primal grovelers. No wonder she owed a link with that old witch woman for, though in deceitfully slight proportion, Marceline was a negress. Now, you don't even need that last sentence. It could have ended with just, in the eyes of genius, unmistakably a scion of Zimbabwe's most primal grovelers. That's actually what... I, I don't know if he's talking... If the Zimbabwe's most primal grovelers, if he's talking about African-Americans, it's, it's pretty bad too. But it almost works as a better way to come out at this than to emphasize her racial background to instead emphasize her, like her ethnic, and cultural, and historical background. Um, and I think... August Derleth, I read this, that he actually changed the final wording to do that, to say she's just from Africa rather than a, a negress. That does seem to be better, um, but it's such a small part of the story, and it's not surprising at all. I mean, it's totally obvious to anyone who's reading it, um, I, w I imagine. But, yeah, it's not good, but, you know... The story has so much nice, really wild stuff in it about painting, about art, about decadent art cultures, the transatlantic kind of connections of these artistic communities, uh, this kind of symbolistic art being explored. And then as just another brick on this story of vernacular grassroots grounded traditions that are connect the world together in these underground tendrils of of knowledge and mythology it's great it actually is this is a good story um i think yes it's it could, should have been revised significantly i think um and it could have been a better story it could have been this could be a not racist story if if it was just revised a little bit, it wouldn't take much to make it a story that really couldn't be accused of being racist. It could really be a interesting, someone should rewrite this actually into a story about like kind of connected to Afrocentrism and, and African-American traditions. You know, if, you know, I did a whole series on Zora Neale Hurston. She talked about voodoo and Afro-American, African-American traditions uh, in America and, Haiti and other places so it's that stuff's there at this time and it's being talked about by black writers I just wish Lovecraft would have maybe dug into that a little bit more and and not made it so kind of cringy at times I guess that's it that's all I'm going to say that's my thoughts on it I'm not trying to make a defense of this story I, I just think it's got a lot of good stuff in here and what's to like is really well done here, I think. And it's kind of wild. Um, the characters are, are are rather like, especially Marceline. It's just a really well developed character uh, in the story. Um, she doesn't really have too much motivation, but you know, as a villain, she's she's fairly well developed, and I wouldn't say humanized really, but. Um, she could easily have been a little bit more humanized. Maybe that love triangle aspect could have been developed a little bit. You know, 
He doesn't nail the landing. Let's put it that way. I don't think you need the ghost part of it either. You, know, you don't need that this house burned down a long time ago and this old man is probably just some kind of weird ghost. Um, you don't need that aspect either. So again, this could have, should have been revised. But what's there's a lot here I, I still like. So that's my feelings on it. All right, um, next, one more revision before we move on to the fourth volume of the Selected Letters, and maybe some other nonfiction writing if I can find anything I want to talk about. That will be uh, a revision Lovecraft wrote with Henry S. Whitehead called The Trap, uh, which also, uh, this one I think connects more to the Caribbean because Whitehead had Caribbean connections. So... Maybe we can kind of carry on some things, but I've never read it before. Actually, I think for most of the revisions from not from this point on, I've never read before, so I'll be reading them for the first time. Maybe one or two, um, like the sequel to the Silver Key. I think I read before, but yeah, one more, um, the Trap, the second uh, Whitehead revision, Botham, the Bruise. I'm not going to talk about it because it seems this really wasn't Lovecraft didn't have much of a hand in doing this, if any at all. Um, so I'm just going to skip that one. Um, so yeah, just one more revision, and then we'll we'll jump into the fourth volume of the Selected Letters, which has a lot of fun. We'll have a lot of fun with those letters, I think. It starts to get really into the Great Depression, rise of fascism, the, you know, the growing conflict between Japan and the United States. Um, good stuff. So in a couple episodes, we'll start to dig into those those letters. I'm looking forward to getting back into those a little bit. Uh, any change is good. Um, it's when you do a long series like this. So anyways, next episode, The Trap. Um, in the meantime, let me know if I'm completely off base in, in the way I talk about the Medusa's Coil. Um, but check it out, read it, and, and give me my own point of views about it. Um, yeah, okay. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind. Close him his graveyard words. And unpolished up my pistol. My razor sharp in two. He'll think the